Tonight's episode of Legacy Battle is brought to you by Atlas Benefits. Atlas Benefits has solutions for your insurance needs. Atlas Benefits can help you obtain Medicare, health, or life insurance, and employee benefits. You can find them on the web at www.atlasbenefits.com. Or you can contact Rob Ducey or Roy Smith at 727-600-2892 and mention Legacy Battle Podcast. Atlas Benefits has all the solutions for your insurance needs. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Legacy Battle. Make sure you hit subscribe or whatever you're listening on. You know, we're on YouTube, of course, but we are also on Spotify, Apple, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Podnods. We are on everything. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. We're coming to you with a, a different show today. This is going to be a special interview of just a wonderful tennis player. Uh, with me tonight, of course, from the Gridiron Battle Zone is Brian King. I'm Michael Adams, creator of Legacy Battle. Our special guest, this guy has 232 professional career single ATP wins, 157 double wins with six career titles, represented the United States as a member of the US, U.S. Davis Cup team. He was also on the board of directors for the United States Tennis Association. Currently, he leads a radio ministry called the Christian Worldview and is part of the Overcomer Foundation. In 2011, he won the Eugene L. Scott Renaissance Award. This, this guy's got all kinds of stuff that we could we could mention in this intro, and he's a member. Where do you, where do you find all this? <laughs> uh, the internet's got it all, and he's in two tennis hall of fames. So it's, it's David Wheaton. David, thank you for coming on today. Hey, it's good to be with both you guys. Thanks you. Thank you for having me on the program. I just want to start out by saying it's a little disconcerting to see myself on the screen here with no hair, and then to see that picture behind you where I have all kinds of hair. So. Thanks for making me feel old. That's why I wear hats. <laughs> It'd be the same yes. way for me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, as I was saying today, we don't have a debate today. We're having just a special interview with, with our guests. And we're going we're gonna to start this back at the very beginning. So, born in Minneapolis. That's such a hard word for me to say all the time. Minneapolis, Minnesota. That's right. Uh, you know, basically, how did you start and get into tennis? I think I saw that you started at four years old. Is that correct? Yeah, that is one of the most common questions I get asked is how did you ever develop into being a professional tennis player coming out of Minnesota? That's like the Jamaican bobsled team question in reverse, right? <laughs> um, but really, th there was a lot of elements that went into that. Um, I, first of all, I'm the youngest of four kids in, in my family. I have two older brothers and older sister, and I'm actually younger by a long shot. My next oldest sibling is about eight or nine years older than I am. So I grew up in an athletic family. We also had two public tennis courts like a block away from my parents' house where they still live to this day. Uh, and so I had older siblings. I had a couple of courts nearby. Um, we also had a pretty extensive chain of indoor clubs in Minnesota. It's very good here from an indoor standpoint. Um, you know, this is a pretty good tennis community. 
uh, even though lots of you know professional players don't necessarily come out of Minnesota, it's of course not po it's it's possible if you look at you know Russia and uh, Sweden, Germany, other cold weather climates produce good players. So, uh, and then I said a great family. You know, my my mother and my my dad just uh, poured so much into me. Had every opportunity. Local people, coaches, Jerry Noyce, others, people who own the clubs, gave me free court time, and there was just a long chain. Of, of different people who invested so much in me, starting with my family and working out from there. And uh, it was just kind of one step at a time. I started playing the, the great Minnesota sport hockey when I was just two. I was left-handed in hockey. So that, that left-handed slap shot translated over into having a good two-handed backhand in tennis when I was tossed my first balls at age four. I played both hockey and tennis growing up uh, until I was about, I think about 13 or so. And then the sports begin to conflict with each other. There would be holiday hockey tournaments at the same time that the national indoors and the Orange Bowl would be taking place. So I had to make a choice. I think when I was around 13 and I, I chose tennis. I like the individual aspect of tennis. I love team sports too, but I just felt like uh, for whatever reason at the time, tennis was the sport for me. And uh, it was one step at a time from there. And by the time I got halfway through my uh, sophomore year of high school, I was invited by Nick Bolateri to, to finish my high school years down at his academy. And that was a, a huge point of development for me as well. Good. All right. All right, David. So first off, when I first ever saw David Wheaton on TV, it was probably around 89, 90, somewhere in there. I saw this this cool looking guy that had the, had the uh, uh, U.S. flag bandana going, as you can see in the picture behind me. And I just wanted to know, was there a story behind that? Like, or were you just really patriotic? Or what was the reason for always, uh, you know, repping the USA flag like that? Yeah, you know, I think there's a couple of reasons for it. Um, first of all, I played on the Junior Davis Cup team, uh, you know, in my late teens uh, for a couple of years there in the juniors. And that was always kind of a patriotic thing. We represented the country at some of the junior Grand Slam tournaments. So there was that representation of America at that point. Um, secondly, on the tour, I think around the year 1990 uh, was when the Gulf War was taking place, uh, started. And so, you know, just wanting to support the troops and support our country that way. And I think thirdly, you know, I love this country. I, I think this is the greatest country in the world. If, of course, it, it's not a perfect country, but it's, I think, the best country in the history of mankind uh, from a standpoint of the, the freedoms, the opportunities, uh, all the different things this country offers. And so you combine all those together and I love wearing the Stars and Stripes headband. I don't really have need for it today with the, with the lack of hair, but uh, it was definitely became a trademark uh, when I was on the tour. So we're gonna be jumping back and forth with your career here. So I'm gonna take it back again a little bit. So uh, I believe in your teenage years, you were down in Bradenton, you were training with, uh, other teenagers, such as, if I saw correctly, Andre Agassi, uh, Jim Courier as well. I think I saw his name. Yeah. So what was that training process like with them? Um, could you see how great they were going to become on top of what your potential was? Yes to all those things. I mean, it, it was a special time at the Boletary Academy at that time. I think Nick would tell you so. Uh, this was back in the you know mid to late 80s. Um, you know, the, cat, the academy had already been around for some time at that point. You know, Jimmy Arias, Carlene Bassett, other well-known players had kind of been in the early stages. 
And then maybe you could call this the second stage. Aaron Crickstein was still a teenager and on tour then. He was there. And then all of a sudden, over a period of a few years, you know, some of the top players begin to migrate there to train. And as you mentioned, Agassi and Courier and, and uh, others like Martin Blackman and I was there and a couple others uh, that you know, would have professional careers. Uh, also, Monica Sellis was there at that particular time. Oh, wow. uh, and so it, it was quite a training environment. And that's really one of the missing pieces that wasn't taking place in, in Minnesota. You know, we had court time and we had other things here, but it, it, the court time just increased down there. And, and the coaching was really good. The camaraderie uh, and the competition with these other players, you know, when you're when you're kind of mixing it up with these kind of guys every day uh, in the afternoon after school, you know, it's pretty hard not to improve in that kind of uh, environment. It was a competitive environment. Uh, it was a lot of uh, 16, 17 year olds, you know, with uh, big egos and, you know, kind of wanting to outdo each other. But it really created an environment where um, it, it fostered high levels of improvement. And, you know, we didn't know what we were thinking at the time, but I, I think that I at least suspected that there were players down there that you know we felt like we were the next generation to to uh to hit the pro tour and to make an impact and that's obviously certainly what happened especially for guys you know like Agassi and Sampras and Courier and Chang who won you know multiple grand slams and and really dominated the game for you know over a decade well I want to take you to um the grand slam cup tournament um you were invited to that tournament twice you had very nice results there. In 1990, you made it to the semifinals uh, after defeating the legendary Yvonne Lindel. 1991, you were able to win it all, uh, knocking off uh, the great Michael Chang. So what do you remember about that tournament? And what were your thoughts when it was sort of absorbed and discontinued? Yeah, that, that was a really interesting event because there was so much prize money in it. It was sort of unheard of in the game. And there was actually controversy over that, that, oh, there's so much prize money. This is going to you know, just a ridiculous tournament and this kind of thing. Compact Computer was the, the sponsor of it. Uh, of course, the prize money, you know, in that tournament, you know, comparing to some of what they offer in the Grand Slams today is, you know, it's more today. You know, things continue to grow. Um, but I just remember when the tournament came around in 1990, I was just super excited just to qualify for it. They took the, the top 16 finishers um, from that year's Grand Slam events and, and I qualified for it and, and made it over there and and to Germany and Munich. It was in the Olympic Hall in Germany where they held the 1972 Olympics. So I was really excited to be there for a lot of different reasons and did well that year, got to the semifinals, um, lost a tough match to Brad Gilbert. He was one of my, my nemesis on tour, uh, lost in five sets. Um, but the next year I qualified again um, by reaching the semifinals of Wimbledon in 91, I qualified again. And this year I went back and lo and behold, won my first two matches and got to the semis and, and beat Michael Stieck 7-6, 7-6, 7-6 in the semifinals. Um, in his home country, he was Wimbledon champion that year. And then played Michael Chang, who is just always a very, very challenging, difficult, competitive player. Um, and, uh, you know, I wasn't working on very much sleep. Uh, the, we played the semifinal on a Saturday. Uh, Chang had beaten Lendl in five sets, so the match went very late. I think I started my match with Shtick around 9 o'clock at night for a three out of five set match, which is late, and um, finished around midnight and didn't get to bed till probably 3 or 4 in the morning and had to play the final 
what what turned out to be the same day now or a Sunday morning and wow. uh, the final was Sunday afternoon and I don't think my expectations are probably super high especially playing someone like Michael Chang but for whatever reason uh, maybe my expectations were low or maybe I was just loose or had a lot of momentum but played a really really good match against Michael Chang that day executed well and, and won that match in in straight sets and won the Grand Slam Cup and you know, not only was it you know, the biggest victory of my my tennis career um, from a tennis standpoint, um, but it's also I, I think a turning point in my life. Um, it was at that point in my life that I remember after winning that tournament, I remember distinctly remember holding the trophy uh, on the, the that court with photographers, you know, taking pictures of me and so forth. And, and within about ten minutes of that big win. And holding that trophy, I happened to look up in the in the crowd and notice that you know all fourteen thousand people that were there that day had literally gone gone home. There was the stands were empty, and I, I just remember thinking, "Wow, that really came to an end really quickly." One of the one of the biggest moments of my career. I had several, you know, getting the semis of Wimbledon and other, you know, playing for the Davis Cup team was a great honor and different things. Just being on tour and experience, but this was one of my my biggest wins. And I just remember thinking how quickly that came to an end and that is more of the same going to bring the type of, I guess, contentment and satisfaction that I was thinking it might, you know, winning a big prize money check and winning a big title and kind of being at the top of the game for a day. Um, and just walked off the court thinking, boy, there's, there's got to be more than this, although it was great. You know, how am I going to be motivated to play like maybe in the next tournament somewhere where there's not so much kind of fortune and fame and success on the line. And that really, I think, triggered something in me um, that set me on a search. Uh, I'd grown up in a Christian home, um, made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ at a young age, but you know, it wasn't that wasn't really meaningful in my life by the time I won the Grand Slam Cup when I was 22. I think I would have said I was a Christian, but I wasn't living like one. I was kind of living according to the, I, I, I think I'd describe it like this. I was on the throne of my life instead of God. And, uh, but that really kind of um, jarred me winning that tournament. It, it wasn't like a low point in my life. It was actually a high point, which is interesting. And that set me on kind of a, a journey, a search for the next couple of years. I, I just um, struggled, you know, and I began a couple of years later, I began to read the Bible for the first time in my life. And came to understand what it meant to uh, be in a right relationship with God through repenting of my sin and putting my faith in Jesus Christ. And that was a the biggest turning point in my life, uh, to believe that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And uh, I believe that 100%. And it was really when I was 24 years old, I guess that's 28 years ago now, that I really committed my life to following Christ. And I didn't become some perfect person after that at all, but uh, it set my life in a whole new direction. That goes with a great quote that I found uh, from you. And I was actually <laughs> gonna bring it up with this question. Um, it's, it's a long question, so give me a second. So you went to Stanford, that's a yeah. tennis powerhouse, of course. We've had, you're our third Stanford tennis grad. We had John Stark and Elise Bergen, of course, but okay. turned pro in 88. And then in 91, you have your biggest year on the tour. You win the, the, the $2 million uh, Grand Slam Cup over there in Munich. Um, but a after that, uh, you had this quote, and it says, here I had won a big title and a big paycheck, but it was the first time I, re I remember experiencing that winning more and earning more 
was not going to make me fulfilled as a human being because I wasn't at peace with God. So I bring that up uh, on top of what you had just said. 91 is your biggest year in the tennis world uh, as far as money and, and it looks like wins as well. Uh, 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 most people would be like, I'm doing pretty good and I think I have the world, whereas you, you didn't feel you were, you were on top. Yeah, I think there was a conflict going on inside of me at that time because I've been raised in a Christian home. My parents had exposed me to who God is, who I am, who Christ is, but I was still going my own way. I just was kind of riding on their coattails instead of personalizing it for myself. And so I felt this conflict inside of me because I knew I wasn't living in a way my life to honor God. He wasn't first in my life. And you know, I believe that every person is created by God personally and individually in order to worship him, to be in a right relationship with him. That is the purpose of life is to is to know God and to be in relationship with him and to worship him and follow him and obey him. That That's where the most fulfillment comes from in life. And that was not my pursuit at that time in my life. I may have said that, but I think the reality was, is that, you know, winning tennis tournaments, making money, doing Nike commercials, having big endorsement deals, the typical things that there's nothing wrong in and of those things with earning a living. I'm all for earning a living. You can, more money you can earn, the more power to you. But when those are the idols or the gods of your life, and that's what drives you getting more of them, is ultimately not going to make you happier or more at peace and so forth. We see that all the time. I mean, no matter how much money you have, um, you know, you can make, you can be a billionaire, you can have everything in life, so to speak, and you can be very unhappy. Your marriage can be falling apart. You can be a bitter person, an angry person. It just goes to show that it, your life is peace and happiness, contentment, satisfaction, or whatever you want to call it, you know, doesn't come with what we have. It comes with who we know. From a standpoint, do we know the God of the universe, the God who created us? And, um, you know, I just I look back on the last 28 years of my life and that that is even more true now than ever before. And, um, you know, that's good news. It's, it's, it, that, that's good news that, you know, for someone watching today who who is trying to figure out what's the purpose of my life. And, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm going the right direction. I, you know, I just feel like I have a lot of regret or, or what I don't feel like I'm, I'm settled in life. Well. The reason that is, is God created you to be in relationship with him. But our sin separates us from God and puts us, kind of alienates us from him and puts us under his judgment, actually. And I felt that when I was 24 years old. I knew if I kept on going my own way that the Bible is true about judgment. It says the wages of sin is death. That's not just a physical death. That's an eternal separation from God. And so that scared me, actually. Um, and it should. There, there should be not only a love for God, but a fear of him. And but the good news comes next is that that's why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life and to, to be the perfect substitutionary sacrifice to pay the penalty we deserve to pay for our own sin. And so that when we, when we put our faith and trust in him, God forgives us. He makes us right with him. He gives us a peace that surpasses all understanding. Not that life becomes perfect or without trials. I had plenty of trials in my own life. But... God gives us a perspective to endure uh, through those trials of life. And a, of course, a great hope for this life and the life to come after we die as well, too. So it's all good news. The gospel, that's what it literally means, good news. And so uh, anyone watching today, that is just, uh, 
if I use say give give someone one piece of advice in life, that would be it. And going back to your original quote, that's why I said that at that particular time at the Grand Slam Cup, I just I wasn't at peace inside myself, despite the fact that I was, you know, kind of at the top of the tennis world at that particular time. Well, basic instructions before leaving Earth, as they call it. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> Brian, go ahead. Well, you mentioned the, uh, you know, the 1991 season just being an unbelievable season for you. Um, in particular, I wanted to ask you in 1991, along with your partner, Patrick uh, McEnroe, you advanced all the way to the finals to the, in, in the Australian Open. So what was it like and what could you tell us about playing with Patrick? <laughs> Well, Patrick and I had known each other since our, our junior days. He's a couple years older than I am, so he was always an age group ahead of me. Uh, but then when we both went to Stanford, we, of course, got to know each other well, being on the same team. We won the NCAA title that year. And uh, we complimented each other well on the doubles court uh, because um, I'm a bigger, rangier guy. Uh, he's an excellent returner. Uh, he understands the game of doubles very, very well. Uh, and so I, I often think that doubles players who aren't identical on the court can sometimes be a good complement to each other, maybe with the exception of being the Bryan brothers. They're, they're, you know, they're left and right-handed, but they, they play, I think, fairly similarly. Um, you know, what, what a great dominant team they have been. But with Patrick, um, he just, we just, we knew each other well, we complimented each other well in our games, we had a good run there at the Australian Open that year, and that was, uh, you know, a very memorable time to to get all the way to the final with him. So you, you doubled, obviously, as Brian just mentioned, with McEnroe. Also, I've seen Andre Agassi, Luke Jensen, uh, quite a few people you've doubled with. Was there a double partner that you felt most comfortable with? Like you thought, hey, this is going to be a, a good tournament. Um, and then, since this is my last tennis question, I want to throw this in there too. I. I've noticed that you actually beat Andre Agassi quite a few times. Is there some reason that you might have had his number? Because most people didn't have his number. I, I knew the trick. No, no there was no trick uh, to beating him. You just better play very, very well and hope he's not at the top of his game. Um, uh, back to the doubles question first. You know, it was that was at a particular time. I think pro tennis is still that way, that I, I was kind of – you know, doing well in singles, not necessarily in the top five or 10, but doing well. And it was difficult to play doubles all the time, you know, from a standpoint of just energy. And so I wasn't playing doubles regularly. And in some ways, I wish I had. Um, but that's just the decision I made back then to, to not necessarily play full time. So I'd end up not necessarily having a partner, the same partner, you know, week after week, year after year. So I play with a number of different players uh, the ones you mentioned, other ones like David McPherson, we we had some success together, uh, other guys. And I like playing doubles. I think my game set up well for doubles, serve and volley, returning. I loved, I love, I always like playing on a team. So doubles is was fun that way as well too. Um, so I did have a lot of good doubles experiences on the tour with a number of different partners. Uh, you know, even one more memorable one, even after playing on the tour, um, playing in some of the senior events at the Grand Slams. Uh, T.J. Middleton and I uh, won the over 35s at Wimbledon. And that's just a kind of an exhibition event, but it was really fun. We had a great time, you know, playing there for several years against some of the other teams that we played with back when we were in our playing days. Um, the second part of your question was regarding Agassi and, and playing him. 
Um, of course, I knew Andre well because we were at the academy at the same time. Um, I think my game actually set up well to play against him. Um, he's very difficult to beat if you, if you're kind of a baseline player, unless you're unbelievably good from the baseline, he's probably going to beat you because he's so good at it. So when I when I tried to play him, I had a very different style um, and you know really tried to take him out of his game of being able to stand on top of the baseline and just control the points and run you around like a yo-yo. You know, tried to serve big, try to get in the net, keep the points shorter, uh, keep him off balance, not give him much rhythm. Uh, you know, basically try to control the points myself by, by coming forward all the time. And so I think he beat me more than I beat him on tour. But uh, I did get a few wins in here and there, which were uh, which were nice to think back on. Got him at Wimbledon. <laughs> that counts That's there. right, Wimbledon. That, that, was a, that was a very memorable match for me. It was in the quarterfinals. Um, you know, he had, he had not won Wimbledon at that point. He had won Wimbledon the next year in 92. And so he was a bit of an unknown quantity on grass at that point. And that's when the grass kind of bounced lower at Wimbledon. It really favored more of the serve and volleyer. So I don't think anyone thought that Agassi maybe was the threat to win Wimbledon that year. But lo and behold, here he is in the quarterfinal. So he can't be too bad in grass. And with his returning ability and his passing ability, um, he was formidable. And, you know, I won the first set pretty handily. I was up in the second set and he, he kind of, you know, kind of had an injury in his leg and he took an injury break. And after that break, though, he came back, you know, playing unbelievably well and just kind of spanked me for a couple sets and was up two breaks in the fourth set. So two sets to one and two breaks in the fourth and somehow kind of miraculously almost was able to win that fourth set and then won the fifth set. It was a very memorable match on center court uh, beating Agassi. And we all found out the next year how good he actually is on grass when he won Wimbledon. So um, I understand recently you became an author. Um, would you be able to give us a little glimpse into what My Boy Ben is all about and where our viewers may uh, be able to purchase a copy? Yeah, I would, I would, I'd be glad to. Um, so coming off the tour, when I was 32 years old, and I think it was in 2000, end of 2001, just had reached a point that, you know, I really wasn't making a great living doing anymore. It wasn't that highly ranked. Um, you know, physically just some injuries and, you know, I've done it for 13 years and great experience, but it just wasn't the same as it was before. So I came off the tour and really didn't know what I was going to do with my life, to be honest. And would I get back into some sort of tennis capacity coaching or whatever, or do something else and I won't give you the whole story, but I got involved in unexpectedly, I'll just say that in Christian radio. And I told you my faith story there, and uh, someone had just offered me to take over a local Christian sports radio program. So I got involved in that, still doing Christian radio to this day called the Christian Worldview Radio Program. And, uh, excuse me, that's a big part of my life and what I devote my time to. Uh, we can talk about that later, but you asked about the books. That sort of led in some way to me writing my first book in 2004 or five called University of Destruction. And that chronicled my time when I went off to college at Stanford, just what a difficult time from a, a spiritual um, opposition that is, what, what Christian kids encounter on secular campuses. So that was my first book. Um, and then years later in 2014, I wrote a second book about a yellow lab 
that I had during the latter part of my days on the tennis tour and then into that transitional time coming off the tour. And that Yellow Lab's name was Ben. And there's just as kind of a really amazing story about you know how we got this dog and why I wanted to get the dog and being on the tour at that time and family and and being single at the time and uh, how I lost Ben just unexpectedly in the middle of his life and kind of the story of God's grace after that. I mean, it's, it's really, there's a lot of dynamics in that book. Um, and it's been a, you know, thankfully a very, um, a book that readers have really enjoyed. It's a story. Uh, it's, it's almost like a autobiography of a, a memoir of my life over about a, you know, 10 or 12 year period um, in my, my late twenties into my late thirties. And um, it was a very meaningful part project to be a part of it. Still going to this day. There's, we've done you know marketing campaigns with it, and we we do personalized. People like to buy it for a gift for the dog lover in their life, or just the tennis lover, or someone who just likes reading. Um, we have a website myboyben.com where you can order signed and personalized books. Um, but yeah, the two books, and especially more the latter one, more recently have been just incredible projects to be a part of. And um, you know, had a lot of help with publishers and that kind of thing, and it's been a, just a, a great, meaningful thing to be a part of. So tell people where they can find your radio program, what it's about, and also uh, the Overcomer Foundation, uh, where people can donate. I'll make sure that when this show does post, we'll put that in our Facebook group as well. So, okay, well, thank you for asking that. But they can listen to the program first before they decide if they want to support the. Uh, the ministry. So the Christian Worldview is a, a weekly one-hour radio program that focuses on current events, issues of faith from a biblical perspective. You know, so the mission of the program is to analyze, examine current topics from a biblical perspective, and also to proclaim or to explain how people can uh, be in a right relationship with God through Christ. There's an evangelistic element of the program as well. So we interview guests and do all sorts of topics. That's been going on for a lot of years. The website is thechristianworldview.org. And the Christian Worldview is actually under the umbrella of the Overcomer Foundation, which is really, they're really not one and the same, but the Overcomer Foundation is the official name of the 501c3 that directs the Christian Worldview. But if people want to hear the program, find out what we do, go to thechristianworldview.org. There's a new 54-minute program produced every single week of the year. Not every single week, most weeks of the year. And um, so that, that's what I spend a lot of my time on every week. Um, my wife, Brody, helps with that a lot. We have others who, who help produce this program. We have resources. We do events, all sorts of things uh, around that particular program. Kind of the other half of my life uh, is for profit. Uh, we operate, own and operate two short-term vacation rental properties here in Minnesota. Uh, one is up on Lake Superior called Lutzen Lake House, and another one's down just just near the Twin Cities, actually, in a small little country town called Jordan. It's called Stonehouse Farm, and, and these are very have been very interesting business to be a part of. Uh, serving people who come from all over the place uh, to stay at these properties and uh, just either for a vacation stay or lodging or that kind of thing. So that's what we do for profit and not for profit. Uh, we operate the Christian worldview. 
we want to thank you for coming on today and 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 giving us some of your time. I, I know you're you're very busy. You do a lot of things. Uh, when I was researching this, so we really appreciate you coming on and and, and hearing hearing your your tennis stories, of course, but but also how you how you came to find the Lord. So thank you for joining us. It was really great you, to have you. You are very welcome. Thank you for asking me and uh, wishing you all the best with your program as well. Thank you very much, everybody. Make sure you remember to hit subscribe, whatever you're listening on. And we'll see you next time. Have a good night.